Well, we're going to be in James chapter 2. If you want to grab a Bible, turn there. You can do it in your, in your, on your phone, but your phone's going to try and get you to think about other things while you're turning to the book of James. So use the book if you can. These, this thing is called a book. It's been around a while. It's pretty good. Um, but yeah, James chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and uh, we're in the series Kinetic Righteousness. Hopefully it's starting to make a little more sense to you. Not just some vague term, but the idea is that the, the righteousness that God desires, the righteousness that God seeks, the righteousness that, that counts in his economy, the righteousness that he um, takes delight in, is a righteousness that is active. It's a righteousness that has hands and feet and finds the places where unrighteousness has caused damage. And it goes there with the righteousness of God and it, and it makes things right, right relationship. Um, restoration, healing. Uh, that's the righteousness that God is after. And, and the frustrating thing for Jesus was the righteousness that the Pharisees were after. They were practicing a righteousness, but it was much more about a, a being righteous than doing righteousness. And as you read through the scriptures, and especially in the book of James, you see that the righteousness that God after is after, it, it is kinetic. Um, a line that I just don't want us to miss in all of the words that I'm going to say today, a key verse here um, from the book of James is, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. Now that kind of talk is what has gotten some people to actually think James should not be in the New Testament um, because it's a little bit dangerous. And it's true, you can take this too far and you can try and be legalistic. You can try and earn your salvation through works or deeds or righteousness. And, and that's not true. Hear me very clearly as we're going into this book. We are made righteous by Jesus Christ's work on the cross. There is no other way to become righteous but by Jesus Christ and being hid in him. 100% absolute, no doubt about it. However, Jesus has not made us righteous so that we can stand there and look pretty. He has not shown us mercy so that we can just sit there and be like, wow, this is so great. Check me out. Covered in mercy. He has not put light inside our souls so that we can just sit there and kind of look in a mirror and marvel or get around each other and just be like, hey, you got light, you got light, hey, we got light, let's go light. He has made us righteous so that we can then go into places of un unrighteousness and make a change. He has given us mercy, just like Jeff said last week, such an awesome message. He has shown us mercy so we will multiply that mercy into the places where people aren't experiencing mercy. They're experiencing a lot more shame and pain. I loved when he told the story about run. We want to be a church that runs into the places of pain. Not so that God will love us and save us. No, that's already been established on the cross. But because God loves us and saved us, we want to be those who run into that pain. And we want to be those who are so grateful for the light that Christ has given us through his word, through his spirit, through his family. And we take that light into the darkest places so that they can get a taste of what Jesus really is all about. This is what we're trying to do is be kinetic in our righteousness. And righteousness is such an important thing. And I grew up mostly coming to church and I had a little kind of few years at a Christian school and the righteousness that I grew up hearing about and experiencing in those places, a lot of times was a righteousness I, I just was not interested in. 
It was a lot more about like achievement. It was a lot more about kind of winning. It was a lot more about rules. It really looked a lot like religiosity. And even though they talked bad about the Pharisees and Sadducees, I was like, why are you talking bad about them? That's what you are. Um, And so I just, I kind of had a real distaste in my mouth for the idea of righteousness. But the more I've read the scriptures and the more I've, 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 I've experienced the righteousness of God showing up, the more beautiful I've really seen it is. And I think it was getting kind of confused by these other people. And on, on Wednesday night when the panel was sharing stories of, of connect, when righteousness became kinetic and showed up in their lives, it was so beautiful. It was like, I want to see that so badly in my life, in the lives of our church. Psalm 112, I think, gives us a good picture of, of what the righteousness that, um, what righteousness looks like when it shows up in our lives and in the lives of others. And I'll read it to you. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commandments, even though some of those commandments are tough. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their house and their righteousness endures forever. It's not about right now, it's what comes later. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. For those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous, gracious and compassionate go along with righteousness. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked will see and be vexed, though will gnash their teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. There is pleasure in sin for a season, but then comes destruction. There's nothing lasting in there. There's nothing beneficial in there, and especially not for the generation to come after you. But with righteousness, if we can get this stuff right, if we can walk into the beautiful, compelling righteousness that the Bible puts forth, it's going to affect those who come after us. It's going to affect your children. It's going to affect the generation that you're in and the generation to come. It will create something that lasts. It will affect the poor. It will affect those who who need somebody to lend to them. And what it'll do is it'll cause something to ripple and continue on long after you're gone. And so this is the kind of righteousness that God is calling us into that we're trying to learn about and walk into. Um, And our guide for us here is James, James the just. So let's read James chapter two, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Question mark. Can such faith save him? Question mark. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Question mark. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, but I have deeds. I'm I'm more on the faith side. I'm more on the mental ascent. I'm more on the kind of saying the right things, learning the right things, but I'm not so big on actually doing all of those things. We're just different in that regard. But then James says, show me your faith without deeds, 
and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James is, as you know from the last couple of weeks, he's kind of like the guy that when you get, when you, like, let's say you were getting in a fight with James. Um, it's what it feels like. Whether you like it or not, reading in the James, you think he's fighting you. You don't, you don't know why. But he's the kind of guy that goes into the fight and doesn't kind of like, you know, size up the opponent. He's not the guy that goes into the fight and just kind of like dances around a little bit. He's the guy that goes into the fight and starts with the headbutt. You know, it just comes right at you. Like, you know, now what are we going to do? Um, so here he's basically talking to his church because uh, he was a pastor of a church and he's telling them they're just like demons. Um, Verse 20, you foolish men and women, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he gives some some examples. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now again, you can see how someone could kind of make way too big a deal for works-based righteousness or works-based salvation not talking about that at all. What James is saying here is, yes, there is a reality where we come into a relationship with Christ. We come into a submission, a surrender to Christ and what he did on the cross, and we find a justification, a righteousness, a salvation in that, no doubt about it. But then there is a working out of that salvation. There is a walking out of that. And he even says that we are made, our our salvation, our righteousness, our faith is made complete. Walk that out. And so we got to watch out for that kind of far extreme, but at the same time, we got to hear what James is trying to say to us, what he's trying to teach us. And James the just is a guy who has a very interesting perspective on what it means to be Christ-like, because he grew up in the same house as Jesus. Alec talked about this in his awesome message a few weeks ago. I told those guys to stop doing such a good job when I'm out, because it's you know, like a little weird, you know, when they're so good. No, I didn't say that at all. They're just so good. I loved it. Um, but, but James grew up, he was the half-brother of Jesus, right? Not the same dad. Just virgin birth, Christmas, you with me on this? So James is the half-brother of Jesus. He was the younger brother of Jesus, and he grew up in the same house. And I, I think James is so interesting because I've always wondered what happened between 12 and 30 for Jesus. Like Jesus was born, Bethlehem, we know tons about that, right? We sing about it, we celebrate it. And then at one time at 12 years old, he spent the night at the church, And then it's just like radio silence. And then 30, bam, here he is, and we know a lot about those next three years. But James knows what happened in those years. He knows all about those years. Um, Younger brothers, they they study their older brothers. How do I know? I got two older brothers, and they study them. They study them, you know, know, to find out what what good they're doing, but they also study them so they know not what stupid things to do. And I had great examples of both as a young brother. I had two older brothers. They were both state wrestlers, and I was a basketball player, so they punished me all the time for that. But I learned from them, and there were so many times they would actually, like, 
make it so that I was not able to do certain things even though they were doing them because they knew they weren't right and they knew they weren't beneficial, but they wanted to make sure that I didn't fall into those traps, which was so interesting to me. But I got to study them. I got to see what good they were doing and kind of exemplify those things they were doing and stay away from those things. And James was, was that as well. He grew up watching Jesus as a younger brother. And, and also, it was probably the most frustrating thing in the world. Because James, you know, he's like, going to mess up every once in a while. He's going to break something. He's going to do this. And then he'll be like, no, it wasn't me. It was Jesus. And then, and then Mary will be like, James, um, I'm going to go ask Jesus if it was him. So what do we want to do right now? Because Jesus never sinned. Jesus never told a lie. James did not follow Jesus. James did not think highly of Jesus until after the resurrection. And I don't blame him. It would have been so frustrating to always be like, what went down? Mary would be like, all of you stop talking. Jesus, what happened? <laughs> you know? And I know a little bit about that because I grew up with, with two older brothers and the three of us, we broke a lot of things. We did a lot of dumb things. Um, we fought a lot. We did all these things. And we, and I had a best friend named Philip Buckley, by the way, um, Mark and Christina Buckley started Living Streams Church in their living room 37 years ago last Monday. Living Streams, 37 years old. Watch out. Um, and uh, and it's, it's just awesome to see what the Lord has done. And they have tons of stories. But, but Mark, Mark and Christina's son, um, Philip, their second son, um, and I were, were best friends growing up. And uh, Philip never told a lie either. And he was like, it was like, he's the best friend. He was so awesome. He's also like the worst friend. Because same thing in our house, my dad would be like, what happened? Who broke that? And, you know, Peter would, you know, Peter, my brother Peter, he loves to talk. He loves to tell stories. He doesn't know what exaggeration is. He just thinks it's like a game. And so he would come up with, the, he'd come up with seven stories on the spot. He's brilliant. And then my brother John would just kind of like grunt and, and like, you know, just not really say what happened. He'd just kind of avoid saying things. And then I would just kind of, you know, I was a little manipulative and I'd always somehow get John in trouble, I think. Um, and then, but like we just, we all had the way we would come out. And my dad, whenever Philip was there, it was, it, he would just know, we weren't allowed to talk. He'd say, Philip, what happened? And we'd all kind of hang our heads a little bit because we knew we were, we were going down. We were going down for sure. That's what it was like for James. But, but he, he learned about Jesus. He learned what it was like. And then after the resurrection, he just, I mean, fascinating to think what happened in his heart and soul after the resurrection and, 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 and then calling his older brother Lord, the Messiah. I mean, that's the, that's the place he came to and he committed the rest of his life to following his example and living for his glory. And he became the leader of the, of the first church in Israel. Um, as they decided, you know, who was going to be the leader of the church. Yes, the apostles are there, but they kind of spread out in different places. And James, James became the leader of that first church. He was cultivating that community. And his job was he was, to, he was trying to help that community look and feel the most like Christ. And he had some of the best perspective on that. And so he was doing that. And so he's writing this book about 30 years after the resurrection. 
So the community of Christ has really taken some shape and form. And actually, AD 30 is when Jerusalem was destroyed and they went through all of that. So it's right before that. It's kind of a very interesting time. And James puts this letter out to the community of faith. And he's saying, I, I think you guys are you kind of really emphasizing a little too much the right things to say, the right things to think. And you're not emphasizing enough the aspect of Jesus that was so just service-based. You've become so good at statements but you've lost the, the heart of service. And he goes through all of this, and we've got a little outline that we've been looking at. Uh, James chapter one, he talks about the kind of religion that, that God accepts. And again, he's got the whole image of Jesus in his mind, and he's saying the, the, the religion God accepts is one that is all about orphans and widows and their distress and keeping yourself unspotted in the, from the world. And when James looks back and thinks about what Jesus was all about, he was all about the vulnerable. And James is saying we can't forget that as we're walking out as the community of Christ. And the second thing we talked about, which is last week, uh, Je uh, Jeff took us through mercy triumphs over, ju over judgment. J James got to see that lived out, that Jesus lived perfectly righteous, and yet, and yet he didn't hold that over people. Instead, he showed people mercy. And he got to learn that mercy is what's more important than anything else. And it's funny because in this kinetic righteousness series, I've been really looking at justice because justice really is kind of like kinetic righteousness. It's doing justice. And, and I've been studying justice. I've been diving in. And I know our culture right now is wanting to really understand and see justice happen. And the more I've studied justice, the more I think justice is not really what we want. What we want is mercy. Because if, if, if really everybody got what was just, then there would be a lot of inequity. Because some people work harder, some people have more abilities, those type of things. So it would kind of create this weird type of thing. But the only true place that we have equity is actually in our sin. That we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore we are all in desperate need mercy. Mercy is what's going to bring us together. Mercy is what really we long for. And somehow God in his amazing wisdom accomplishes justice through mercy instead of judgment. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. And then actually we started off the series because, you know, my whole COVID month um, with Ryan teaching us about those who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. And again, I, that's, I've been chewing on that big time. Um, today we're talking about kinetic faith. And then we got a couple more teachings, the tongue and unrighteousness. James is real big on the tongue. And, and all of us understand that the tongue is probably one of the greatest purveyors of unrighteousness in our day. And James would say the same thing about his day. Um, and, then, and then in James chapter 5, it's interesting because the heading in your Bible, which has been around for a long, long time, um, is warning to rich oppressors. And I just think it's so awesome that the Bible's been there, done that. You know, society's really doing a lot of critique on, on, on a lot of different things in our society. And I, and I don't think that's necessarily bad. Critique is not bad. Um, but I don't think society really has the best perspective on what righteousness is. So I love that we can go to the scriptures and we can have a, a whole section that's warning to rich oppressors. And, uh, and we're going to be going through that. So... Um, Maybe go to a different church for a few weeks or something. But no. no, it's good for us. It's, it's what we need to hear. Um, 
And, uh, and so that's a little bit of our outline. And, uh, and then we've got this passage. And in this passage, James unpacks for us three different examples I want to look at um, of, of what, he, what he would say helps us in the process of having kinetic faith or kinetic righteousness. And the examples he gives, um, there's three of them, and, and I've got a point for each one of them. Uh, you can put the points up there. First of all, um, he gives an example that helps us remember we need to get proximate and generous. If we want to do righteousness, it has a lot to do with being proximate to pain and generous in the face of needs. The second point is we need to be obedient and sacrificial. Obedient and sacrificial. Oftentimes when God tells us to do something, it, it comes with sacrifice, just as a heads up. And then the last thing is we need to take care of the vulnerable. And so the first example he gives is the story of you come across someone who's um, hungry and, 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 and doesn't have enough clothes whether they're, they're naked or whether it's cold and they just don't have enough warm clothes. You, you come across a situation of a person in need, and James says, so often the church nowadays is saying, hey, be warmed and filled. I pray a blessing over you. I'll give you a track, or, or I'll tell you a Bible verse, and then be on our way. And James is just saying, that is not at all what Jesus would have done. That is not like Christ. What James would say is you need to, get, need to get in there. You need to get proximate to the hunger, proximate to the nakedness, proximate to the pain and the lack and the poverty. You need to get so close that you actually are close enough to get your shoulder underneath the burden that that person might be carrying. And you need to be generous and meet those needs. And I, and I don't know your situation. I know there's a lot of people in this church that they are champions of this. They are doing so well at this. Um, we had the panel on Wednesday night. They did such a good job of sharing their stories from their lives of, of how they got proximate. And how, again, the proximate is not so that we can come and rescue, but somehow we can enter into this space where there's this mutual rescuing, which is so beautiful, an exquisite mutuality, an extraordinary kinship. But if we spend all of our lives avoiding pain, or as Jesus told the story, you know those who walked on the other side of the road from the person who was in pain, we're going to miss out so much on the beauty of righteousness that God wants to produce in and through us, and the beauty of the blessing of, of having that mutual rescuing go on that only God can do, of mercy showing up. And so we need to get proximate and we need to be generous. The second example he gives is Abraham um, offering up Isaac. If you don't know that story, way back in the Old Testament, Abraham, father of faith. Abraham's just a guy who actually was, a, was an idolatry. He was worshiping other gods, but then somehow Yahweh called to him and said, hey, I want you to leave everything and go to the place I show you. And Abraham, okay. <laughs> so he takes his whole family and he goes to this desert. And he's just out there, and God continues to give him step-by-step -step instructions about what to do and where to go. 
And at one point, Abraham, you know, he was old and he, he and his wife were old and they wanted to have a son. They weren't able to have a son together. And finally, they had a son, Isaac, in their old age. And it was this beautiful, you know, accomplishment of this promise. And he was so excited. And then one day, God says to him, Abraham, I want you to take your son, Isaac, up onto the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to honor me. And Abraham did it. Got his son, he got the wood for the sacrifice, he took him up the hill, he got out the knife, he laid his son Isaac on the altar, and he went to kill him. And an angel actually stopped his hand and said, Abraham, I don't want you to kill him. I take no delight in human sacrifice. But what I delight in is you have chosen to cherish me above everything else. And Abraham was willing to be obedient. He was willing to be sacrificial. And it counted as this beautiful righteousness. And God, God's calling you and I to get uncomfortable. He's calling all of us into an obedience that is going to make our flesh so upset. That's going to make us vulnerable. That's going to make us experience pain and discomfort. It's going to make us sacrifice. And, and I would be lying to you as a pastor if I didn't tell you that following Christ is going to cost you. But everything that you pay in, every price you pay, everything you sacrifice, God keeps track of, and he will reward those who diligently seek him. But it's so important, according to James, as he remembers the life of Christ and he's trying to form this community that, that he loves and cares for, so important that they remember they need to be obedient and they need to be sacrificial. And the last thing is he gives us the example of Rahab protecting the spies. And uh, the, the, the title here is Taking Care of the Vulnerable. And this is such a, Rahab is so fascinating. Rahab is a prostitute in Jericho. Like Jericho, the Canaanites, the ones God was sending his people in to kind of wipe out because he had given them 400 years to turn to him and they have continued further and further into their debauchery. And here's a prostitute living in the walls of Jericho that the Bible talks about all the time as this example of beautiful righteousness. And what she did is the, the Israelites sent spies into Jericho to kind of check things out. And they found themselves where the guards of the, of, or the, the soldiers of Jericho found out they were there and they were coming to kill him. And they were running and hiding, don't know how it happened exactly, watch the movie when we get to heaven. But they ended up like finding their way into Rahab's house and somehow she knew what was going on and somehow she had heard about the God of Yahweh and what was happening and, and, and really was convinced that that was the true God. And so she ends up protecting the spies, hiding them away, and the soldiers come, and she's like, no, they're not here. They just went that way. If you go quick, you might be able to catch them. So she's lying. She's a prostitute liar. And the Bible's like, dude, check her out. You got to check this, this lady just so, so righteous. And, and, and that act ends up bringing salvation to her whole household, she somehow becomes a community of the Israelites. 
And not only that, but then she actually becomes in the lineage of Messiah, of Jesus Christ. She's like the great, 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 whatever grandma of Jesus. Rahab. She's like the great, 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 great grandma of David, the king. And Israel's all like, ooh, he's so awesome. And time and time again in the New Testament, they're like, oh, yeah, remember how righteous Rahab was? So first of all, whatever your past is, it doesn't matter. The righteousness of God is always more powerful than our unrighteousness. Every second of every day. It's not even a contest. Our righteousness comes in with that headbutt, bam. And unrighteousness is like, bam. But in this story, what James is wanting us to understand is she took care of the vulnerable. She didn't have it all figured out. Her faith was not dialed in. She didn't know all the things to say. Her statements probably were not in order. But she took care of the vulnerable. She took care of the foreigner. She took care of the illegal. And it was counted unto her as righteousness. And they got the other stuff worked out later for sure. But taking care of the vulnerable is a really big deal for the heart of Jesus and what James is trying to remind us of. When I say vulnerable, we're talking about the ones downriver. We mentioned that a few weeks ago. There's a whole bunch of people that live downriver from you. And what you do with the river, what you do with what you have is either kind of stealing everything from them or it's helping them experience some of that. And right now as an American, guess what? You're at the front of the river. You have all the resources of the river. And the whole world in some extent lives downriver from us. And we're gonna be judged accordingly. We need to keep that in mind as we do business. Um, the other thing that I think is important, the vulnerable are the ones the amendments don't stand up for, the ones that don't fit into your plans. I feel like the Lord's stirring up, you know, when I was reading this and studying this, abortion. I mean, I have a daughter with a special need, and, and when we found out in the womb that she was gonna, the first thing the doctor said was, do you wanna abort? We're like, what? Talk about Vulnerable. And the way that Jesus described it was the least of these, the least, the ones society has totally forgotten, the ones that no one would ever pay attention to. Poverty of health, poverty of wealth or opportunity, poverty of spirit or education relationship, poverty of mental health. These are the ones that Jesus really wants us to learn and know. Tim Keller, who guy who teaches, and I think he does a lot, really a lot of great things. I'm going to say what he said because I I'm too nervous to say it myself. But he said, if you don't know the name of the poor, you don't know the name of Jesus. I thought that was very James-like. And so these three things have worked themselves out in, in my life in a couple different ways. Um, recently, um, getting proximate, I, I, I met a kid, eight years old, I was 23, we met at this summer camp and and uh, after the summer camp, I was like, hey, man, let's hang out. And so I used to show up and take him, you know, to, out to eat or to go do some fun things around his birthday, Christmas, kind of big brother stuff. And, and I got a little insight into the world that he lived in with his family, and it was hell. And uh, every time I would drop him off after we hung out, I would just drive away begging the Lord for mercy for him to cover him somehow because 
it was, it was, it was really rough. And uh, years went by and years went by, and I continued to just kind of, and I would lose them sometimes because they moved a lot. I didn't have a, the, a consistent cell number. And uh, I would lose them, but then somehow I'd always, like, find them. Literally, like, one time I was at Magic Mountain, and he showed up. And I was just like, what? What's your number now? We reconnect. It was a total God thing. But 20 years, you know, we'd just been hanging out and kind of showing up little, wishing I could do more. There were times where I thought, man, I, could he come live with me and my wife? I don't know. And I, I, we're newly married. Like, there's just all these different things, all these challenges. But I just felt like I'll just show up and give what I can. And... and uh, and then his mom called me one time and told me he had been arrested and he was in a mental hospital. And, uh, and so I went and visited him and we talked and I went home and I was telling my wife about it. And, uh, and my wife, who is just so unafraid, she said, why don't, why, don't we, why don't you ask him if he'll come live with us now? And I, I mean, the thought had never crossed me. I got three daughters. <laughs> and... Uh, and he's got schizophrenia, he's serious mental illness, all these things. And, and again, I'm not saying you should invite everybody into your home. I, that, please don't hear that. But, but we really felt like the Lord was saying, this is the moment. And so he came and lived with us for a year. And we were able to really find out some interesting things. I mean, he had voices speaking to him all the time. But because of all those years, because of all that time of proximity that we had together, he could trust my voice. I was the only voice in the multiplicity of voices that he had ro ruling, ruining and ruling his life. He could trust me and he would come to me and he'd say, hey, the voices are saying this. And I'd say, that's the voices, that's not real. And you could see it was so difficult for him, but he knew he could trust my voice. And so we were able to get him some help. We were able to get him with some doctors. We were able to get him with some cysts. We got him all things and he's like winning the battle with schizophrenia right now. And we're still walking together. And I had no idea that all those little bits, I mean, I was just literally hanging out. I'd take them out to eat. We'd go see a movie at Christmas. When I was a high school youth pastor or whatever, I'd take him on weird trips and he'd be like, we'd all like high schools and there was this guy. And he was just like soaking it up. I didn't know, I didn't know the Lord was building something so important for, for a season in his life. I had no idea that how, how, how beautiful it would be when the righteousness of God showed up and how powerful it would be and that we would get to experience it together and find that rescue together. And so it doesn't have to be some grand, massive thing. It could just be one kid you just walk with for years and years, getting proximate. And then the other thing the Lord's really challenging me right now is, is uh, he want, I feel like the Lord told me he wants me and us somehow to strengthen the church in South Phoenix. And I'm like the poster child for not the person you want coming in to help minority communities or anything like that. And I get that, totally understand that. But the Lord's put on my heart, so I'm trying to be obedient and walk into this thing. And I just went um, to an all-black church last Sunday because I was all cleared and everything with protocol, but they told me not to come here. So I just walked in, and, and, uh, and I, it's, a, it's a friend of mine church. Um, we've been kind of getting to know each other, building a little bit of relationship, and I showed up, and I walked in, and you know, it was very different. Um, from here, I mean, there's about 30 people, and, and we, I walked in, and I was trying to be really considerate and, and set everybody at ease, um, and, you know, obviously, I was very different, and, and so there was lots of reactions I would get. I, I remember when I walked in, like, you know, it was cool because they were like, oh, <laughs> what's up with this guy? Is he lost? What's going on? But then they, but they, would lean, they leaned in. They were like, you know, come on in. You know, they were very welcoming. It was awesome, 
And then I was sitting there, and I remember a couple times, you know, someone would look back, and then they'd see me, and there was a couple people, and it grieved my heart because I think their reaction was either suspicion or fear. And the reality was that they had to, they've heard about white guys like me going into churches and shooting people up like those. And so, like, legitimately, they have to process that out. And, and it just broke my heart that there's this, like, challenge between us. That, that is a reality. And so they would kind of, like, overcome that, and I would try and set them at ease. But we ended up having this wonderful time together. Again, you know, 30 people and me just sitting there. And, you know, the worship time was just rich and awesome. And the Lord totally ministered to my heavy heart. And then, and then I got to listen to the message, and the guy was preaching in a way that I was like, dude, I got to learn to preach, man. These guys know how to preach. I don't even know how to preach. He, I remember he had like, he, had, he would do like three wipes with this towel on his forehead, and then it was a full wipe. It was like three wipe and a full wipe. It was like this rhythm. I was like, yeah, 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 bam, bam, bam. It was so awesome. It was wonderful. And the Lord spoke some deep guidance to some questions in my heart. And I loved it. And then I just sat there, and, and the last song was going on, and I was like, Lord, okay, what do, you, what, what do I need to learn? And I felt like the Lord said that this church, this church of 30 people, and obviously there's more, and there's a whole history with this church, but there's more online and all that. But he said, this church, this church has alleviated just as much pain as all the big churches in this city. This church, pound for pound, is one of the best pain alleviators in the city. They know how to be generous and be proximate. They know how to be obedient and sacrificial. They really care about taking care of the vulnerable. And I just, I mean, my heart just both broke and soared at the same time. And I want us to be a church that can alleviate pain that runs into it, that pound for pound, we are alleviating pain in the city. We are taking care of the vulnerable. And, and you're not gonna find them unless you go. And you're not gonna find them unless you somehow help them know they don't have to be afraid of you. You're not coming to do some sort of project, but you're actually coming to just get underneath their burden and walk with them. You're not better than them in any other way. You're just full of mercy because of what Jesus has done and you want to see if they want some mercy. And my example means nothing in comparison to Jesus' example. And Jesus, more than anyone else, he became proximate. The whole incarnation, he was in glory with the Father in heaven and yet he saw us in our pain. He saw us in our lack and he became not some royal priest, but he came a babe in Bethlehem, born in an awkward situation. A lot of people thought Ill illegitimate. And he lived consistently in that. He didn't break out of poverty. He didn't break out of oppression. He continued to live in it. But somehow the mercy of God, the goodness of God was more powerful than all the things he faced. And we're still talking about him today, all these years later in a far off place. And not only was he proximate, but he was obedient. Philippians chapter two tells us he was obedient and sacrificial, even to death on the cross. He was not afraid to sacrifice, even though he had never sinned. And we know very clearly he took care of the vulnerable. One actually with signs and wonders and preaching good news to the poor. 
but also he took care of all of us who were vulnerable because we were stuck in our sin and we were headed for hell. And he provided the rescue we need to be with him forevermore. What an awesome God. What an awesome Savior. Worth following and worth emulating in our world today. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We want more of you. We want to be a community that just looks, smells, feels, and tastes just like you. So we need your blood to cleanse us and make us righteous. We need your spirit to fill us and empower us. And we need to know what, what things you want us to step into, Lord. Bring people to mind or bring situations to mind. I pray you would use this kinetic righteousness deal to connect people in this room to people in pain if they're not sure how to do that. But Lord, I also want to pray for those who are experiencing a lot of pain right now, experiencing a lot of poverty right now, whether they're online or in person. I pray that they would just know how proximate you are. They'd feel your comfort. They would cry out to you and you would be found, Lord. I pray for those who don't know you or aren't walking with you. I pray that today, Lord, that would all change. And they would step out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They would receive you, Jesus, and find you such a faithful friend. We pray all this in your name. Amen.